Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. When we think of advancements in biomedical discoveries, we often think of the clinical trials and research projects that push the ball forward. But a big piece of the puzzle is in the availability and use of data to push those projects forward. That data doesn't just appear out of the blue. It takes the right infrastructure, policies, and culture to enable better data-driven research. Today, we're going to take a look at how those three elements meld together in one project at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. That project is called Biodata Catalyst, which you may remember we talked about on HealthCast back in 2020. Since that episode, Biodata Catalyst has gone live for researchers to use, and NHLBI is making new strides to make the platform secure, accessible, and inclusive to a more diverse base of researchers. The Institute's CIO, Alastair Thompson, rejoins us on HealthCast to share updates in these efforts and highlight how platforms like Biodata Catalyst can change the way researchers work with and share data. All right, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us today on the show um, once again. And actually, last time we had you on the show, you were standing up the Biodata Catalyst project at NHLBI. But since then, you've moved beyond the pilot and have opened it up to all researchers to use. So can you first give an overview of the purpose behind the Biodata Catalyst and what the process of launching it for official use has been like? Yeah, hi, Melissa. It's really great to be here with you again. Biodata Catalyst is really designed to address the challenge of of big data in biomedical research. I think when I was last here, I talked about the massive scale of of data, particularly genomic data, you know, DNA sequences and things. Um, You know, we have in our top med program at NHLBI uh, almost four petabytes of data. And across NIH, we've recently discovered we've got about 170 petabytes of data in the cloud now available for researchers. And just that scale of it, for researchers to be able to use it, they can only use the cloud. And so Biodata Catalyst is designed to enable researchers to access that data in the cloud and then compute on it in the cloud uh, for their, their research to conduct various analyses. Um, and this has enabled some things that have just never been possible before. Uh, up till now, accessing the raw genomic sequence data uh, for people, uh, the three billion letters of uh, your genome, uh, has been impossible. We've had to use reduced forms of that data that's been pre-analyzed, but now they can actually access it. And this has enabled uh, a lot of things to happen, including some uh, a better understanding of the variation Uh, that occurs in the human genome, not just sort of individual changes of letters like you see in a disease like cystic fibrosis, but really complex changes where there are insertions or deletions of a a sequence of uh, genomes or where they get reversed. And and you have to have the raw data to do that. And this is leading to some important discoveries about the roots of disease and, and the way that the genome actually works. Since we stood it up, uh, it, it's, it's been uh, something of a journey to get there. Uh, one of the things that, that we wanted to do with Biodata Catalyst was really uh, make clear to, to the research community that NHLBI and the government has real stewardship over the data. And so we made the decision that uh, Biodata Catalyst was going to be operated under a .gov uh, domain. 
to really represent that. And we discovered there's a lot of challenges in doing that. There's a lot of regulations that have to be complied with, uh, the continuous diagnostics and monitoring programs for cybersecurity, all of which we had to weave into this, into something that is being uh, actually deployed and operated by academic institutions who are not familiar with this at all. Uh, and so it, it took us quite a while to, to get them up to speed on the cybersecurity side of it. Now I think you know these institutions have a really good understanding of government cybersecurity rules, and you know we've been able to protect the data uh, very very closely. And I think the the evidence for that is uh, you know the response to the Log4j uh, vulnerability, which obviously affected everyone in government. But we had to work with the academic institutions to resolve it for the Biodata Catalyst components that they host, and they did it extremely well and extremely quickly. So it's it's been a challenge from that perspective. I think we've also recognized that one of the challenges we have is in terms of making the, the system available uh, and be usable by a broad range of researchers. Uh, in particular, uh, as we all know, the pandemic has really revealed the, the, the issue of, of health inequities. Uh, and that those kind of health inequities in part are driven by uh, researchers uh, and a lack of you know, diversity uh, of researchers. And so we found that we weren't having as diverse a, a set of researchers using the platform as we wanted. And so over the last uh, six months, we've developed a, a pretty comprehensive uh, diversity, equity and inclusion plan, uh, which is focused on engaging with, uh, for instance, historically black universities and colleges in order to bring their researchers in. Um, these are often uh, institutions that, that don't have a lot of capacity for their own IT infrastructure for the high-end kind of genomic computation that Biodata Catalyst needs. And so it actually opens up for them uh, a whole new, whole new areas of research, particularly considering the, the top med data is, is specifically designed to be diverse. It's the most diverse genomic data set in the world. Uh, and really reflects the the ethnic makeup of the uh, the U.S. population, uh, and so uh, it, it's new things that have been layered on. Most of them are not really technology focused; they're about how people work with it and who's working with it, and those kinds of things. Yeah, we always hear about how the technology is often the people and processes behind it too. So that rings true. Now that Biodata Catalyst has been open for public use. You mentioned how you were working with HBCUs and other uh, communities that would broaden your research cadre. How have you seen the research community engage with the platform? And how have you seen researchers engaging with data sets in new ways um, through Biodata Catalyst? So, you know, we started uh, with a very small set of pilot users. Uh, and then one of our first steps was to expand the user base by using our uh, Biodata Catalyst Fellows program. This is a, a tremendous program for, for new investigators uh, in universities and colleges across the country uh, where they can apply for a fellowship and we, we pay them a, a stipend. Uh, and we pay them to uh, help us build the system and to conduct their research. Uh, and so we've had on our uh, third cohort now uh, who are doing, we've had our first uh, graduates from the program. It's a, it's a one-year fellowship, and the second is about to graduate. And these people have brought in a lot of real innovation 
uh, one of the things that's been important to us, us with Biodata Catalyst is that it, it be uh, a living ecosystem. And many of these fellows have come in and they've brought their own tools or they've developed tools specifically for the, the analysis they want to do for their research. And those tools are now available within Biodata Catalyst. One of our requirements for them is that if they developed a tool, that they had to uh, encapsulate it in a technology called Docker, uh, which enables the, the analysis workflow to be executed in multiple places. And that's stored in one of our platforms called DocStore, which is available for all researchers, Biodata Catalyst users or not, to, to use. This does a whole lot of things. It means that we've got you know, a, a great group of people who are helping to enhance the Biodata Catalyst without you know, a significant amount of government funding because they're doing it for their research. Since we've launched, uh, we've been uh, doing a variety of things to bring users into the community. Uh, in particular, we've been holding these community hours uh, where researchers can come in and they can, can work with the, the teams that actually develop the Biodata Catalyst platforms uh, and learn how to use it. And so we've had some focused ones on uh, how to do uh, genome-wide association studies, which uh, helps us understand for uh, a particular phenotype or a particular characteristic of people, uh, for instance, blood pressure, it enables us to see where are the, the changes in the genome that are associated with that. And there's some quite well-known ones uh, for, for certain diseases, and but also for more generic things like blood pressure and cholesterol. And so we bring them in and they, they work with the, the people who actually built these systems and, and a set of scientists who worked with them to understand how to use it and how to, uh, to make use of it. This has caused quite a significant growth in uh, the number of users that we have. We have hundreds now that have, have sort of joined the community and a, and a pretty significant number of those who are actually on now doing real research with it. And one of the things we've learned is just how important that engagement with users really is. Uh, it's one thing to have the platform, but helping them understand how to use it and how to use it effectively is really, really important. Uh, I think one of the challenges with a cloud-based uh, environment is the fact that you pay for every CPU cycle you use. Uh, and so we found that users have something of a, a fear of overspending that they'll run an analysis and they'll suddenly find that, well, they spent $5,000 in a day. And we've had a couple of people who've done that. And so running these community uh, sessions really enable us to help them understand how to optimize uh, their workflows if they've built one for themselves. It's also helped us to link together biomedical researchers with others who really understand uh, the algorithms that they're using. So computer scientists who have a lot of experience and depth of knowledge about how to, to write software in an optimal way. Uh, and, and the community has really been able to link them in uh, so that they can produce these workflows which don't have the risk of you know, suddenly blowing their budget. Not only does Biodata Catalyst increase researchers' access to NHLBI's data, but it enables them to bring their own data in and even share it with the research community. How is this model and culture around making data open and sharing data important for moving biomedical science forward? So one of the challenges with, with biomedical research uh, beyond just the scale of the data is, is making the data available to a broad set of researchers. 
Uh, and again, I think the, the pandemic has really revealed the value of data sharing. Uh, and so some of the major sort of research programs uh, associated with the pandemic, uh, the National COVID Cohort Collaborative, N3C, for instance, which has been, it was gathering, uh, you know, millions of billions, in fact, of records from electronic health records in hospitals, uh, and then making that available to researchers uh, around the world. Uh, and there have been really important discoveries about COVID which have come out about it, simply because that data was then available to a lot of researchers. You know, typically data is, uh, you know, collected in a, in a st research study, uh, and it, it's in the past, it was generally sort of locked up in, within the institution uh, that ran the study. Uh, but now with two platforms like Biodata Catalyst, it's much more available. So researchers are required to share their data unless there's a you know, specific sensitivity uh, around it that can prevent it. Uh, there's NIH policies on data sharing, which are, are evolving and heading more towards more open sharing of data so that this kind of you know, expansive research. Uh, to give you an example of that, uh, the NIH's Recover program, which is focused on uh, all of the things that happen after you've had acute infection of COVID, and we call it post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, or PASC, part of which is long COVID. And we're working uh, as we're uh, enrolling uh, patients. Um, we've got you know several hundred now enrolled in this massive study. Uh, that data is being gathered, and the, the goal is to get that out to the, the research community very, very quickly, long before the study even finishes, to get as many people analyzing it as possible. This has been a huge culture change uh, for the research community who are used to controlling their data uh, themselves. Uh, and it's taken building some trust that you know the data will be protected and used appropriately, uh, but the value that comes from it has just been, uh, you know, incredible. Another uh, related to COVID uh, in terms of data sharing, we set up a, 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 co a cohort of cohort studies from some of our existing uh, large studies like the Jackson Heart Study and Framingham Women's Health Initiative and others to look specifically at COVID. And that group has been working uh, within Biodata Catalyst, bringing the data that they they collect about their uh, their cohorts and working on it within Biodata Catalyst so that when they're done, uh, it'll be fairly easy for them to essentially click a button and now that data is available to the whole research community so even more people can work with it. Um, this also aids in uh, you know, a problem which uh, has been observed in, uh, in science for is getting worse over the last several years, which is the question of reproducibility. Um, some recent studies uh, looked at reproducibility of research uh, in the cancer field, and it found that there was a significant amount of the research that couldn't be reproduced, that couldn't access all of the data. And that kind of validation of, of re re research results by other researchers is a core part of the scientific method. Uh, you know, scientists love to disagree with one another, and that's how we make progress and, and come up with new ideas. But the foundation for that is being able to reproduce what one researcher has done in another environment using the same data. And so one of our focuses for Biodata Catalyst has been on enabling that reproducibility. Uh, an example of that, the, uh, there was a study of hydroxychloroquine treatment in COVID called ORCID. Uh, and that study uh, published its results, 
Uh, and within 30 days of that publication, we had all of the data available in Biodata Catalyst. Not just the data, but a replication of the analysis uh, that they did. They even produced the same figures they had in the article that they published on it. Uh, and that provided a foundation for researchers to come in and say, okay, what else can I do with this data? I can see that, yes, you know, your, your analysis was valid and I can reproduce it, but you've now got a starting point to look for other things in it. And that's an accelerator for, for, for scientific discovery. You know you're getting good data. You know you're getting an analysis that is, is accurate and uh, is, is reproducing what was already done. And you, you've moved beyond that very, very quickly, rather than having to go through a long cycle of gathering data, trying to reproduce it and other things. And so this is a, a model that we're, we're working to, to replicate uh, within Biodata Catalyst to enable people to publish not just their data, but their analysis, all of the code that they use uh, to analyze that data, the statistics programs that they use, um, the Python code or whatever in, in reusable Jupyter notebooks, uh, which allow you to interact with the, the code and the data. Uh, so you can just grab it and someone else can, can repeat the study with all of the data, assuming they have appropriate permissions to use the data. Um, that's a huge change in, in uh, the direction science is able to go and the pace at which we can make advances. Very true. And that's a really fascinating point, being able to create that reproducibility and change the way that we think about science. I want to take a moment to focus on the cloud, which Biodata Catalyst runs on. And we've seen how cloud capabilities generally have been a key way that NIH has been approaching better store, compute, use, and sharing of data. So how has the cloud helped NHLBI as a whole to support its own environment so that it could get to a point of making this data available through Biodata Catalyst? I think one of the key things that's been incredibly helpful, uh, both for our, our internal things and the, the, the platforms like Biodata Catalyst, uh, the, the Cancer Research Data Commons, the Gabriella Miller Kids First platforms, which are all cloud-based, has been the strides agreements uh, between NIH and uh, the three big cloud providers, uh, Amazon uh, Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, and Microsoft Azure, uh, which has given us access to all of their services with uh, some discounts because we use a lot of it, which is really good, but more importantly, it gives us access to the engineering teams of the cloud providers. Uh, that's been tremendously helpful as we're looking at questions like, well, how should we optimize our software to be as, as cost-effective as possible? There's one component of Biodata Catalyst, uh, which uh, called the, the, the TopMed Imputation Server. Imputation is a, a process of estimating variation in a particular genome based off a limited subset of data. So most uh, genome sequencing is actually done using what they call microarrays, which have uh, tens of thousands of, of little spots on them, which are looking for very specific variations, known variations within the genome. But it doesn't go as far as whole genome sequencing, which spells out every, of the th every one of the three billion letters, which is much, much more expensive. And the imputation server is able to take that uh, microarray data and then based on uh, uh, calculations and probabilities, it can impute an entire genome from it, which is a huge saving in cost and a huge saving in time. Uh, 
the data that's used to do that is derived from TopMed, so it's very diverse, which means it's good at, at dealing with data from a, a variety of ethnicities, but it's very computationally expensive. And so this is a case that that, that imputation server operates in, in Amazon Web Services. And uh, as we were, were working with the University of Michigan that actually uh, invented it, uh, we engaged them with the engineering teams at, at AWS, who were tremendously helpful in helping them to see where they can optimize it, uh, where they can uh, they could measure how much memory was using and, and identify the right configurations of virtual machines. And that made a significant difference to the, both the performance of it, but also to the cost of running it. This is something that, that NIH funds, and so obviously we're very interested in making sure the cost that it's cost effective. Uh, and the Strides Agreement really gives us the ability to, uh, to engage with the cloud providers, not only to help optimize, but also to help us to innovate. Uh, they are all the time developing new techniques, particularly in areas like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, and having access to them, access to their training, access to their engineering staff, uh, we can uh, make use of those tools and make them available, uh, the, the tools the cloud provider uh, is, is creating to the research community in a much faster way than, than we would otherwise. And that has a bleed through effect to our internal uh, applications. So uh, we're going through at the moment a, a major migration of uh, all of the uh, internal mission critical applications that we run uh, on premise today into Microsoft Azure. And we've had tremendous support from uh, Microsoft in doing that. The relationships that we built through the Strides Agreement have been really helpful. Uh, while it's internal use, uh, we were a little bit sort of uh, disconnected from Strides itself, uh, it, it's had a lot of effect on it. And so we're able to do things now in ways that we think are, are much more efficient uh, than we would have necessarily been able to otherwise. And that saves us money. That's more money, which is available to go into research rather than just operating things. So now that you have this cloud infrastructure in place and have stood up Biodata Catalyst, returning back to that program, what are the steps you're taking to further improve the platform? Or as you were mentioning, engage the scientific community so that they could learn about the platform and the services you provide? So right now, we're actually going through a, a major evaluation of the program. Uh, we've brought in some external experts to help us with this. Uh, and they've been really assessing where we are, what's been successful and what hasn't, uh, and what lessons learned we've had. Uh, one of the, the really interesting things about Biodata Catalyst is that, you know, while it's a, a you know, a cloud IT infrastructure um, based system, uh, there's a lot of research that's gone in, into it and there's really new innovations which are being developed for it. And so, in research, sometimes you go down paths that work and sometimes you don't. And so we're looking now what things have really worked and what things we haven't so that we can really lay out what we're going to be doing over the next uh, three or four years to continue to enhance it. Uh, one of the things we're going to be doing uh, in in the, the fairly near future is start to expand the, the, the role of others outside the Biodata Catalyst Consortium. Uh, to able to, in a more focused way, work with us to bring in more tooling to en enhance the tools platforms and to integrate uh, some other components. So, for instance, uh, one of the areas which we don't handle particularly in Biotech Catalyst today is, is medical imaging. 
so CT scans, MRIs, uh, and other things. Uh, and so we're actually working uh, with other institutes across NIH to look at where we can leverage what they have done uh, previously to, to bring in imaging tooling that we can then sort of enhance for the, the very specific things that are associated with cardiovascular uh, and lung and, and blood diseases that are a little bit different to, for instance, cancer imaging. But we're working really hard to, to you know, bring in new expertise, uh, bring in new data types uh, too. Uh, we've got a, a big f focus uh, coming up on an electronic health record data, which is particularly related to uh, the recover program for, for post-acute COVID uh, and a variety of other things. And so we're looking at, at different mechanisms for, for bringing them in. Um, the intent is that we'll have grant programs. Uh, we're going to be establishing, uh, the, I mentioned the, the HBCUs, uh, looking at establishing you know, partnership training programs uh, with them so that we can bring in the innovation from their, their folks. Uh, and then there's linkage with other major uh, programs going on within the NIH. For instance, the Aim Ahead program, uh, which is also engaging with uh, in, in health disparities with HBCUs and others using AI and ML and looks at really accelerating those things. We're developing a partnership with the Aim Ahead program which will enable us to leverage what they're doing and bring those kind of AI and ML tools that they're developing and, and the data sets they're using around electronic health records into and make them available within Biodata Catalyst as well. Uh, I think one of the other you know, really significant advances over the last few years has been uh, the, the drive to, to not build silos. You know, there are multiple platforms across the NIH which contain data from, from different groups. So obviously there's the Cancer Research Data Commons, uh, the Mental Health Institute has their data archive, uh, the Gabriella Miller Kids First uh, program uh, with pediatric data. Um, we've been working closely across the institutes to, to look at how we can actually make all of that data available in, uh, across all of the platforms. Uh, and so thanks to a, an, an NIH initiative called the Researcher Auth Service, we now have the ability to uh, consistently grant access to data. So for instance, a, a user who's working in the, the Genome Institute's uh, Anvil platform can access all of the data that's in Biodata uh, bio Catalyst within Anvil. Same with Gabriella Miller Kids First and their data resource. Um, this is a huge change and this is, access to data without having to make a copy of it. Uh, it's all in the cloud. And so these all, because these platforms all operate in the cloud, um, through this, uh, the interoperability that's provided by the Researcher Auth Service and, and some of our use of uh, standards from, uh, international standards from the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, have really uh, enabled us to bring that data together in a way that we haven't before and make it freely available. Again, the, the multiplication of the, the progress that you can make when you don't have to take a copy of the data and put it into a particular cloud environment is, is just tremendous. And we're going to be making a lot of progress over that in the next few years to really expand this, not just to other NIH platforms, uh, but uh, other platforms from around the world. Um, we're in discussions uh, at the moment with the UK Biobank about how we enable researchers to bring together UKB data with TopMed data. 
these are some of the two largest uh, genomic data resources in the world. And being able to work across those, across uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, participants, again, it, it, it is an enormous uh, advantage to progress, particularly if you're talking about uh, the, the genetic diseases related to rare variants, where in order just to see a number of them, you need a massive number of, of uh, participants. And so our goal is to bring together TopMed, uh, the NIH All of Us program, uh, the Million Veterans Program and the, the, the VA uh, and UK Biobank and discussions with the Australian Biocommons uh, around uh, some of their cardiovascular work so that we end up with this truly international pool of data to, that can really accelerate. There's some real challenges in that. Uh, but I think, you know, things have evolved to a point now where we can do that. And the cloud has been critical to it. We couldn't have done it without the cloud and without the help of the cloud providers uh, through Stripes to be able to bring it all together uh, in various ways. There are some challenges around policy. So, for instance, in, in Europe and in the UK, you have the GDPR, uh, which constrains you know, what data can be moved and how it can, can be there. The technology is there to be able to do it. We have some policy things to work through. And some of those things are going to involve some real innovation in not just having to bring data together in one place, but potentially to have to send compute to the data. I mentioned Docker before. This is a key technology that lets us take a, a workflow, uh, encapsulate it in a Docker container, and then ship it off to UK Biobank, for instance, where they can run it against their data. We run the same thing against our data, and we coalesce the results without actually having to move that sensitive privacy data out of the European Union or, or Britain, uh, but being able to then do analysis across it. And that, again, that's going to be an enormous change in the way that we work. Not moving data about is a good thing. Uh, being able to just send compute to the, the local uh, group so that they can do it within their own privacy and security constraints, that goes even further to helping accelerate science. It's definitely a very exciting time hearing all of these different efforts you have underway. And I know we've talked a lot about Biodata Catalyst, and you sort of touched upon some upcoming things, but what is on the horizon for you and your team at NHLBI? Certainly, we still have COVID-19 that we're facing and a bunch of new challenges ahead. So what are your goals and how do you plan to get there? So uh, on, on the research side, um, you know, NHLBI has, has a focus on uh, things like regenerative medicine. And so we're working with uh, a team, again, from academia across the country to look at characterizing stem cells uh, and understanding how they can be used for regenerative medicine. There's a whole new set of data that's needed to be able to do that and new tooling. Uh, we have our focus on maternal health. And, and improving outcomes for, uh, of, of uh, pregnancies because we have a not stellar record of uh, issues for uh, new moms. Uh, and so we're working on that. And, and all of that drives into you know, expanding the scope of what we're doing, expanding the way that technology is supporting all of these things uh, in new ways. Biodata Catalyst is a key part of it, but there's other aspects of it as well. Um, within our intramural program, the researchers on the Bethesda campus, uh, you know, recently, in the last couple of years, they uh, brought in uh, some new microscopes that use 
cryogenic techniques in, in an electron microscope to allow imaging down to individual cells and, in fact, the individual components within a cell so that you can see what's going on. Without the technologies that we've been putting in place, without the high-speed networking that NIH invested in over the last several years, the, G, the use of GPUs uh, from NVIDIA and, and AMD and others for high-speed calculations, uh, we wouldn't be able to make use of those kinds of advanced uh, instrumentation. These are, these are uh, devices that produce terabytes of data every day. Uh, that's the kind of, of super resolution that they have. Uh, and so all of these technologies are really playing into making the science possible. Uh, the interesting thing is that the, these instrument, instruments that generate vast amounts of data and enable discovery are getting faster and higher capacity every year. Uh, in fact, over every two or three years, it's kind of like Moore's law, but worse. Uh, every two or three years, the, the data output of these instruments goes up by about 10x. Uh, and so whereas, you know, four years ago we were dealing with, you know, I had a couple of hundred gigabytes coming out a day. Well, now we have terabytes a day. And I expect that in, in the next, you know, five, ten years, we're going to be dealing with, you know, things which generate petabytes of data fairly rapidly. And so a lot of what we're doing is now really lay out uh, our strategy for how we address that going forward. How do we optimize the use of things on premise? and in the cloud so that the data when it comes off can be can be worked on locally but can also then be shipped off and archived to the cloud when it's it's no longer needed and pulled back again if they need to do analysis um, there's some real challenges there which are just they're pushing the edges of technology constantly and i think that's sort of a a big focus for us is making sure that we stay ahead of it uh, as well as, you know, I say, talk about our cloud migration in, for our internal applications, making the very best use of uh, the cloud, which involves using TIC 3.0 uh, and all of the, the new mechanisms for uh, secure access to data without having to go, you know, back through the NIH network. Uh, there's a lot of things which all weave together to, to make the, the research possible. Uh, that other agencies have to deal with as much as we do. We just tend to have to deal with it on a bigger scale of data. Uh, as you can imagine with the trusted internet connection, if we're talking about moving petabytes of data around, moving that through a single tick at NIH becomes problematic. And this is why the TIC 3.0 initiative for us is very, very important because that will enable us to make data directly available in the same secure way you get with a trusted internet connection, but directly from the cloud providers. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alistair, for this wonderful conversation. I've learned so much and I uh, can't wait to see what you do next over at NHLBI. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I really appreciate these opportunities to talk about what we're doing. We're at a, a truly exciting time uh, in science. Uh, and the pandemic has really, I think, focused everyone on how important this is. Uh, so it's uh, it's a, it's a great place to be working at the moment. I'm really excited by uh, the prospects for doing new and, and interesting things and, and, and helping uh, with health. Uh, if I had said when I was you know back at doing computer science that I would be doing biomedical things, I wouldn't have believed it. But that's the way the world has evolved, uh, and I truly appreciate it.
HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com.